Okay, so again, because this is church and I should be honest, uh, I need to confess that for the longest time, I was afraid of flying. When I was younger, this is what I envisioned when I got onto a plane. I would do everything possible to avoid flying. Uh, and as soon as I would enter the cabin of an airplane, I could just feel my heart. Boom, 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 boom. My palms would get sweaty. My jaw would become clenched. And then when I would sit into the seat and the pilot would do his thing with the throttle, I would grab the armrests as though I could control the airplane from my seat in 21D. You know, ugh, I hated flying when I was younger. And so in 1989, though, I was in love with this girl from Virginia. And we were separated all summer long. And we, we could only talk on the phone and send letters. This is back way when dinosaurs roamed the earth before the internets, okay? And so her parents surprised me with a ticket to come see her. And it was great. I, I went out and we spent a day at the at this state park and we took a ferry ride, ferry, not the ones with wings, but ferry is in boat ferry to an island and had a wonderful dinner at the Surrey house. And we just, it was a wonderful experience. And then I got on a turboprop plane to Washington, DC. So back in those days, if you were puddle jumping from one small airport to another, they didn't give you a baby jet they gave you a turboprop. 20 seats. We never cleared the cloud deck. And it was, and, and I think my hands molded to the armrest during that flight. And so we land in Washington, D.C., and I've got all my quarters to call Jenny and tell her I made it safely to the airport. And I think to this day, I said some very unkind things to her about you will never do this again. And there might have been some other stuff that took counseling and you know things to get past, right? Because I was scared to death. And then I got on a plane and took off. Do you know what day it was? July 4th, 1989. I'm taking off from Washington National Airport and it's the fireworks display, and everybody on the plane is getting up from one side and looking at the others, and I'm like, we're going to die, we're going to die. Like, I couldn't enjoy a single moment of it. It's weird, because back then, I was convinced that if I was behind the wheel, I would be okay. Like, you know, I, I just had this feeling that and back then, I drove all the time. I never let Jenny drive. I would tell her, well, it's because you're too slow. But really, it was control. <laughs> I needed to be behind the wheel. And so I would be behind the wheel. And I, the, the myths that we tell ourselves, I, I, kept, I thought, I just believed this back then. If I was behind the wheel, oh, I'd be ready. I would avert an accident. I would be attuned to bad weather. I would make good decisions. Disaster wouldn't hit me. Why? Because I was behind the wheel, and I'm better than the, than the average bear, okay? Now, what I'm saying right now, some of you in this room know of what I speak. That's because some of you in this room are a control freak. Some of you, 
in this room are a control freak in the making. You're not done cooking yet, but you're on the road. Some of you live with a control freak. On behalf of control freaks, thank you for living with us. <laughs> we need help, okay? So again, control freak is a person who feels an obsessive need to exercise control over themselves, to take command of others in situations, a person who, with an obsessive need to be in control of what is happening. Allow me to tell you about a couple of control freaks in my lives, none of whom go to generations, okay? So don't look around the room, and don't look at the person you're sitting next to when I'm preaching the sermon today, okay? <laughs> you know, I don't want to, you need to listen to the man of God, okay? <laughs> First of all, I, wanna, I have a friend who teaches in Fayette County. She's a great teacher, and she just switched schools, and it was going to be a great move, and she was so excited. And then she got into her new job and discovered that her new principal is a control freak. This principal is at every committee meeting. Every time little clusters of teachers get together, she has to be there. She gets final say on all decisions in the school. It all has to go through her. You have to submit your lesson plans. And here's the wonderful added bonus. You get your lesson plans back with corrections and annotations. Like, who has time for 30? I, I asked her, how many teachers? 30. 30. 30 teachers, you're going to go through 30 sets of lesson plans and do corrections? Like, I can't even keep up with student papers. <laughs> you know, A, fine, okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Last year, eight teachers left. Eight out of 30. She didn't know that when she was coming in, that she was one of the, you know, fresh meat. <laughs> you know, okay, this is not good. She is stressed out. She hates her job. She hates teaching right now because she's under a control freak. I have another friend. I'm going to call her Peggy. Peggy has three daughters. Peggy did everything right. She homeschooled. She did focus on the family stuff. She did, you know, we have these tools. She used tools like No Tomorrow, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. She was restrictive. They didn't have TV. They didn't have Netflix. The kids didn't have phones until they were like 30. I mean, every <laughs> she did it all. She, it was the most restrictive home I've ever heard of. Two of the three girls are now out of the house, and they won't talk to her, and they don't go to church anymore, Okay. So I, if you were to talk to this principal at this school and ask that woman, do you enjoy being a control freak? Like, is this, is this working out really well for you? They would she would probably say, actually, no, I can't keep teachers. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. But I'm scared to death that we're not going to hit the bar with, you know, the state's coming to us and there's all this pressure. And she would speak to the fear that's driving the control. And if you were to sit my friend Peggy down and go, Peggy, come on, you got one left. Come on, don't mess this one up. Like, let go, honey. She would, she would be like, I don't want to be a control freak. It's just that I know so many other kids and they grow up and they become axe murderers. They get pregnant. Like, you know, it's a long list of, you know, worst possible things in a parent's mind, right? And fear is driving it, okay? They're just scared, how do you know if you've crossed the line from being helpful to controlling? Well, allow me to share some red flags. <laughs> do you have a hard time delegating a project to other people? So for those of us who work, right, and you can't pass off everything to them, you know, that could be a flag. 
Do you go to the mat to show someone you're right, even, even if it's trivial? Um, do you have a low patience for someone who doesn't get to the point in a conversation? You're like, come on, get to the point. Land, land the plane, baby. <laughs> okay, right? Do people think of you as being stubborn or inflexible? Do you feel anxious when you've got the day planned, the vacation planned, the, the project planned, and someone comes along with another idea? Does your heart start doing the whole boom, 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 boom thing, right? And you're like, no, no, we're sticking with the plan. <laughs> now, there are all kinds of control freaks. There's the intimidator types. You know, they're going to just bully you to get what they want. There's the worry wart types that you worry wart, okay? Oh, I'm just scared, you know, you didn't call. They use guilt to kind of get you to do what they want you to do. There's the Uber planners. Um, it's always fun to go on vacation with the Uber planners because you are going to be able to pee from 4.35 to 4.37 p.m., you know, <laughs> and it's right there. You better go then because you're not, you know, the schedule's mapped out, baby, okay? There's the micromanagers. I, my, my pastor, for the longest time, he didn't micromanage anybody but the youth pastor, would tell the youth pastor, and we chewed through one youth pastor a year for several years because the youth pastor would come in and he'd be like, nope, you're gonna do this and you're gonna have Wednesday and Sunday and you're gonna do it this way and this is the curriculum and so the youth, the youth pastor was like, yes, by your command, you know. <laughs> he felt like a Cylon, so they just gave up, okay? Um, uh, the opinionators, the master manipulators, master manipulators pull out all the stops. They use guilt, emotion, everything, but you're gonna do what they want you to do, right? Okay, so there's, there's a lot of different types of control freaks. Here's what I want you to know today. God is aware of your need and my need for control, and he wants us to let go. He does, all right? We're gonna get there. I love this song. It's called Crazy. Then there's this line. Yeah, he goes, huh, who do you think you are? You really think you're in control? I think you're crazy. <laughs> okay, I love that song, okay? If you peel away the layers of control, what I believe is that for most of us who struggle with control freak stuff, when you get down to the bottom of it, we're not convinced that we can count on God. We've got to get the bases covered. We've got to cross the T's and dot the I's. We've got to do these things because we're just not sure God's really gonna come through. And then for others of us, the, the, at the bottom, bottom level, we're not sure that God's good. So we, we think maybe God helps other people. God's capricious or he's not even in how he helps people, okay? But I just wanna give you a preview to what some of the things that lurk down there are. Now, because God knows that we have this need for control, he interfaces with that regularly. And one of the biggest, biggest events of biblical history that's recorded in the Old Testament is all about control. You're never gonna look at this story again. It's found in the book of Exodus, Exodus, and it's the story of manna. All right, if you brought a Bible, we're gonna be in Exodus chapter 16, but I wanna set the stage, okay? Exodus chapter 16 is where we're gonna be. But I'll start off with these verses. Years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. One of the biggest events to happen 
in the Old Testament, the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. And so God calls Moses to this end. God heard, God remembered, God looked down, and God does wondrous things. If you've seen the prince of Egypt, it is killer wondrous things. Locusts and frogs and the death of the firstborn and turning water into blood and the parting of waters. Miraculous, wondrous things every step of the way. And we get on the other side of their deliverance, and that's in Exodus chapter 16. So they had been in chattel slavery for 400 plus years. They ha they're delivered out of that. They don't have to lift a finger. God does all the heavy lifting for them. God provides every step of the way. The Israelite army is, or the, uh, he the Egyptian army is drowned in the waters, and now they're on the other side. They're walking toward freedom, and this is what happens. Exodus 16, verses one and following. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elim and journeyed to the wilderness of Sin be between Elim and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt, okay? So it's only been 30 days since all the pow, wondrous stuff. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now, oh, now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. You can hear the guy from Princess Line Bride in this, in this passage right here. 30 days later, it's fresh in their memory. It's fresh in the rearview mirror and they're complaining because their food stores have run out and they're in the middle of nowhere and they're panicked. Well, let's keep going in this passage, right? And that's a little bit further down, verses, verses nine and 10. Then Moses said to Aaron, announce to the entire community of Israel, present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. As Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness, and there they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud, okay? So, God's people miraculously delivered. They're complaining because they're running out of food. God hears, and God's going to act. What's dad going to do, huh? What's he going to do, right? Don't, wouldn't you expect God to go, oh, no please and thank yous? Oh, you're going to go the hard way. This is going to play, you know, you're going to get the thumbscrew of Lord God Almighty right now, baby. Is that what he does? Look what happens. The Lord says to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening, you'll have meat to eat, and in the morning, you'll have all the bread you need. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. What? Provision? Provision? You mean from the complainers, the whiners, the people who don't even know how big you are, God? Yep, provision. I love this story because God hears and God acts not based on the merit of the people who need help. This is good news for you and me, gang. God provides for these people, not because they prayed the right prayers, not because they did the right things, not because they were walking in obedience, not because they did everything right, 
but simply because God is the God who hears. We see this in Psalm 94, 9. Uh, is he deaf, the one who made your ears? Is he blind, the one who formed your eyes? This is really good news because God's deliverance is not based on our performance. That's really good news. So you have the mighty acts of God. You would think, right, that the Israelites in that moment, I look at this story and I go, you just had the parting of the Red Sea. You ran out of food. No big deal. God's going to provide, right? Nope. They're complaining because they're not sure where their next meal is going to come from. Worriers go back to worrying. It's what they do. And in that sense, we're just like them, and they're just like us. There are a few things in this passage, though, that I, I want to draw out. Um, God gives them manna. That's verse 15. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it, they asked each other. They had no idea what it was. By the way, manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? <laughs> I don't know if you knew that, but manna, what is it? I don't know, what is it? I don't know, taste it. You didn't die, okay, <laughs> let's have some more. <laughs> Thanks, Gary, for going first. Moses told them, it is the food the Lord has given you to eat. So there are three things that we see in the story of manna that's recorded in Exodus. One, God is a deliverer. God is a deliverer. The name Yeshua, Jesus, means Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves. If there's an adjective that we can apply to God, it's that God is a deliverer. I'll put that up there for you. That's good news for you and me. And again, as worriers, as control freaks, you know what we would prefer God to be? God the preventer. Hey, God, prevent the cancer. Hey, God, prevent the job loss. Hey, God, prevent the accident. Hey, God, prevent harm. But all throughout the story of God's people, what we see is that God delivers. He's not God the preventer. He's God the deliverer. Remember, Jesus comes to us in the storms, right? The other thing that we see in this passage is that God is near. That's verse 10, the whole stuff about they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. God is near, he's present, and he's working on behalf of his people. That means in your life, God is present, God is near, God is working on your behalf, even when you don't feel like it. And we're gonna get there in a minute. The other thing that we see in this passage is that God tests this is one of the things that drives me nuts about God. God tests. Deuteronomy 8 tells us this about this experience in Exodus 16. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands? Oh yeah, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is where they were. If you're a control freak and you're out in the middle of there, grow your crops. Feed your lambs and your cattle. Go ahead, make it happen. See how that works. 
It's the desert. Nothing grows there. So God takes his people and puts them in a situation where none of the control freaks could solve the problem. They needed to eat, and there wasn't anything they could do about it on their own. And he does this for 40 years. In essence, God is saying, nope, you can't control your way out of this. Good luck with that. And, and we find... Um, Verse 17, so the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little, but when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. In other words, the control freaks that were out there, oh, look, there's all, I, get the jars, Gary, get the jars, and loading it all up in there. I've got this problem solved. We got manna, we're gonna have manna for a month. The rest of these turkeys, they're gonna be starving because they're not working the fields like we're working the fields. You know? And at the end of it, everybody has just what they need and nothing left over. And then on the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, they'd have to collect twice as much, and then on the Sabbath, there wasn't any. But if they collected extra on a non-Sabbath day, it rotted. The Bible tells us it rotted. It was filled with maggots. You couldn't eat it. Do you think God's trying to teach something to control freaks? Yes, he is trying to teach something to control freaks. There's nothing left over. There's no ability to stock the freezer when you're here. You know why God did this? When, if we have a freezer full of manna, we are going to go along for, three, for a year. We are going to go along for 364 days because we got manna in the freezer. And on day 364, we're going to go, God, I need your provision. Right? That's exactly how we are, and God knows it. God has something to say to you and me about control. The first thing, right, Control's really an illusion. Can we agree on that today? It's real. When I'm behind the wheel, like I love when John got his license, I was so glad I didn't have to drive. I miss having you as a chauffeur, by the way. Um, I, my father-in-law gets this better than anyone else. I remember when Jenny and I were dating, he, the, Jenny had a younger brother who had just gotten his license and, and Dave would jingle the keys in a restaurant. Scotty, bring around the car. And he would get in the back of a station wagon and fall asleep and read. And he was perfectly content, no matter how good or how bad Scott was driving. He, you know, boom. And I was like, I want to be like that. So here as a young man with big control issues, I was like, okay, that's where I want to end up. So, you know, it's taken me a while to get there, but I don't have to drive anymore, gang. This is a good thing for my family. It's a really good thing, okay? <laughs> Everybody wins. But what I'm trying to say is control is really an illusion because when you're behind the wheel, you don't know if the guy coming the opposite direction is going to and smack you head on. You don't know if the tires are going to give out or blow. In any. You don't have the control you think you have anyway. It's just an illusion. It's better off trusting God. So let me ask some questions. The first question I want you to ask today, am I a control freak? If you're not sure, just ask a member of your family. Now, they will probably at first lie to you and say, oh, no, no, not at all. You'll tell in their tone of voice that they just don't want to, you know, they're not sure. Is it safe to answer this question? Honestly, like, do you want me to write it on a piece of paper and slip it to you later? <laughs> okay, so question number one, am I a control freak? Do I have a hard time delegating? Am I anxious when someone has a different idea? All right, again, if you ask a family member or friend, they'll tell you. Second question, what? might God be trying to teach me? 
Remember, fear and anxiety have power over you until you're honest about what's driving them. And for us control freaks, I'm just gonna be honest, a lot of what drives what goes on is we're not sure God's gonna come through, we're not sure God's good, and so we gotta make sure everything's covered. It's a trust issue. At the core of it, it's a trust issue, which is why God, all throughout the Old New Testaments, is like, hey, trust me, have faith, trust me, trust me, you can trust me, I'm trustworthy. I got a track record, okay? But we're who we are, okay? So I want this to be practical, so there are some steps that you could take. So if you find yourself in the control freak category, hey, it's okay, you know what? God loves everybody and God made everybody. He made you. Strengths, weaknesses, the whole kit and caboodle. And he loves you and that love is not based on what you bring to the table. He loves you because he loves you, all right? The first step is to identify the emotions that are driving the control. Again, I think for a lot of us it's fear, but there are eight core families of emotion. Jealousy, disgust, anger, sadness, shame, happiness, love, and yes, fear. What's the emotion that's driving your control? The second step is to determine if you engage in distorted thinking. Control freaks are great catastrophizers, right? So I only say this because I was and am a recovering control freak. Okay, so what control freaks do is, well, if I don't hand in this paper, I'm going to flunk, and then I'm going to fail out of school, and then I'm not going to have a job, and it's going to, you know, just like the video we just saw. We go to the worst case scenario every single time because we're convinced, you know, <laughs> that's where it's going to go. Um, so determine if you engage in distorted thinking. Here's the key. You can't help what you feel. I'm one of these people that believes feelings happen. You can't control your feelings. I'm sorry, but Vulcan doesn't work. <laughs> okay, you can't control your feelings. You feel what you feel, but you can control how you respond. And one of the things I've learned in life is my feelings do not always line up with what's really going on in life. I can do a presentation in a room and I can think, man, that was a dud. That, that, that talk bombed, and I'm totally wrong. I can think Jenny's mad at me when she's not really mad at me. Are you picking up on things? So what you're feeling doesn't always reflect what's really true and going on in your life. So again, it takes some, it's going to take some time. You feel what you feel, but you can, you can determine what, how you respond to it, which leads me to the third step, all right? If I'm feeling like Jenny's all mad at me, da, 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 and I want to withdraw and pull away, I need to do the opposite of what my feelings are telling me. Sometimes, for those of us with control issues, a key thing is doing the opposite of what our feelings are telling us to do. Because if our feelings are driving us to do control, that's the last thing we probably want to do that's helpful. So, again, sometimes things won't go my way, and that's okay. Sometimes the other person's way is better. I just had a conversation, uh, sitting down with Matt, who's relatively new to generations. He had all these ideas and saw things I'd never saw because he's outside coming in. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's a killer idea. Oh, ding. Matt's way is better on like three of the three things he brought to the table when we had lunch. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the decision isn't worth being an ogre about. Think about it. If it's a restaurant choice, if it's a whatever, I know it's not what you planned, those of us who have control stuff, but 
right? Sometimes a decision or an outcome isn't worth being an ogre. Sometimes we'll go to the restaurant you choose. Sometimes I won't even give my opinion. Again, these are hard things, but important. Here's why this is important. Here's why I want you to get this. Control actually shrinks your world. Um, Remember the mom I was talking about at the beginning of the message, Peggy, with her three daughters? She controlled the whole kit and caboodle. She controlled that home like no tomorrow. She controlled what they watched, who their friends were, where they went to school, all their activities. I mean, she had it perfectly controlled. And yet, her two grown daughters now won't even talk to her. And she's, oh, what do I do, right? Her world has gotten smaller because she tried to control her three daughters, right? Control shrinks your world. Um, I have a friend who is a campus pastor of a mega church in uh, North Carolina. So this church has five campuses, and he's the children's pastor at one of the five campuses. So as a children's pastor, right, he's the children's pastor. You think he would make some decisions, wouldn't you? Nope. All the decisions about curriculum, staging, lighting, how things are executed are done by an executive team at the big campus. And they simply send him emails that tell him how he's going to do things and what he's going to do. He doesn't, even need, he doesn't even get to go to the meetings. He gets no input. It beautifully played out several months ago. They can't, they're rolling out a new program. And the executive, the member of the executive team says to him, now, now you can decide whether you make that announcement, you know, like this week or ne- if you wanted, you could even do it next week. And when he's telling me this, I'm like, are you nuts? That's not even a choice. That's like a false choice. Like that's puppeteer stuff. And he goes, yeah, my resume's out. <laughs> Shrinking world, okay? For those of you that are younger and you think maybe someday, one day, I want to be in love. I want to have, you know, listen, if you try and control them, they are going to run or it's going to get ugly. It's going to turn into a knife fight. One or the other, (laughs) but both outcomes are bad, (laughs) right? Control shrinks your world. Maybe, maybe, just maybe that's why God doesn't control us like a puppet master, Maybe, just maybe, if you're going to love God, if you're going to follow God, that's you. He doesn't force it. He doesn't coerce it. He doesn't try and control you into a channel of faith. But he's near, and he's a deliverer. All right, gang, I want to pray for us because we need some prayer. And I actually want to pray a prayer that Reinhold Niebuhr came up with in 1951. So pray with me, and then I'm going to make you pray one part of it. God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right. If I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen and amen. So this guy, uh, well, I don't have his picture, but 
I want you to say this with me. This is Reinhold Niebuhr. I, lo I love some of this. He's got great theology, by the way. So if you're bored on a Saturday night and you're like, man, I can't sleep, just pick up some Reinhold Niebuhr. It'll put you right to sleep. I'll be up till three in the morning. Um, but he's the guy who made this serenity prayer. And so they'll put that up. I want, let's all say this together because this, this is the prayer for those of us that are control freaks. Okay, right here, on, this is it on a stick. So here we go. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Oh, that God would help you do just that.